Our, hello. Our, our first reader is Nico Nelson. Nico is a poet living in Los Angeles and she plans on leaving. <laughs> she enjoys traveling at high velocities and making books, though she requests you ask in person if she has actually done so. Her six-month trajectory includes living in a van and reading poems to strangers on streets. Nico used to be a journalist and will probably be one again for the money. Please welcome Nico Nelson. Hello. Hello. Oh, nice. Okay. All right. Um, I'm going to read you all a couple of poems. A few poems. More than a couple. nomenclature. This is the beginning of nominal streets and roving. Dead flowers crawling into butterflies where people aren't as they were but are sane. Doing the same job in the Rockies, doing what can be done in the flats. I'll need more reasons only the flats have, but only in the Rockies can there be reasons in an unchanged crevice, where mountain is only a friend of age. Weeping out wisdom barked into my porous skin, hung from my lungs for lifetimes. I'm surprised by the sensuality of my skin, my back achy and dry, sex constant and showers infrequent. I no longer drink coffee without tasting Christmas, stuck substituting chia for caffeine, the endless taste doling out too much without soulless of paper lines, details outlining sound when time cannot, stuck in lines running down the marina where I finally become the gluten-free coriander I was sold. Here circles are larger than holes, all result in negatives when aphorism is a rumor, talking itself serious, acting like money hadn't changed, changing because of money, impressing us with one explanation for two. Who could be the one who lies to others, who watches waves for beauty and not death plans, who lie about dinner, who are poor out of laziness, who lie about where she's been to know where she goes. I found pieces of my credit card in the seaweed. I saw a girl walking in the Walmart parking lot wielding a small silver cross. She looked like me, though I'd never wear a cross, knowing the irony of walking. The warmth, cold sun, warm water, steam, soap, avocado, the lies feel like soap feels, good as tea, too hot, too yin, and much too sunny. Murder's where the music's at, where silence be detectives finding themselves dying because God of our time don't sell trash bags or motivation east of 9th Street, pole shrines for fear of bottom feeders floating to watch over songs, getting shorter than dying grass and crying palm trees, same as we, wasted out of challenges to shut the system down quicker than eggs and coffee in the year of we where birds leave. When I become God of problems, my best assets are my nails. And I tell myself, you can only listen to yourself nowadays because Hollywood will tell you everything is poetry and only leers make you money. Out left. Happens like laxy mind working when material is vaguely successful. Not pushing easy what is and cannot be the goal. Must be singular, not even God when God is hardest. I'm Bush Mama, accessory of all knowledge, but this destroys form through nothing else but kismet. This is no desire. This is burned unruly. I already only answer here at first. I give into small town when answer spins, where you know what I mean is only geography. I'm stuck on grounds of representation, where face says nothing better than mind and wrinkles from remembering. Here thinly, red, here, thinly veiled blood runs through hate. Don't smell fresh, use it fast, with a neighbor in the half-moon midnight with the doors closed. 
The world has taken three days to get to this place. Lied about it to get to this page right under myself, lighting gas backwards again with Q looking like G. The truth is in the blood of the lamb, braised in the Merlot, Jerusalem can't see, comes every 200 yards of the root of flowers thrown. The breaking game is numbers breaking the stench, breathing behind the metal casing of balls thrown back, practicing for the sake of astounding. Not forever, but for now. This and I, a product of the placed West, of infinite rest, born knowing limits of dreams, and assuming we all spare a gallon. And the undertaker, moneymaker, conquers his heavyweight, like sinks singing from shaky brain, from firm blows swollen in the sun, of names and numbers floating, sinking down sterile cement into my cornea, and I know I may have thinking the wrong thing. Thank you. Next up, we have Emily Baines. This LA native author, This L.A. native is the author of the Unofficial Downtown Abbey Cookbook and the Unofficial Hunger Games Cookbook. Her stories and essays have appeared in Jezebel, Narrative, The Independent, Hello Giggles, and Bird's Thumb, and just recently was awarded an honorable mention from Glimmer Train. And please welcome the newlywed, Emily Baines. Hi, guys. This is from the beginning of a short story called How to Understand What Happened. The bedroom door closes behind him with a crisp click. It is the sound of bones snapping into. His footsteps echo down the hall. For a recent assignment, your teacher had you draw a map of your home. Now you imagine him walking through the map, his footsteps black blemishes on the bright Crayola shades. He turns left into the kitchen. You think of it as your mother's office. She is there now. You listen to the amiable murmurs of their chat. Usually, you find your mother's voice comforting. A sniff of the air suggests she's making chicken marsala, your favorite. Tonight, you will barely touch it. He jokes with your mother about your massive Barbie collection. He says he has never seen a kid with so many toys. This was the reason for his visit to your room. Usually he stays in the garage, where he has been building an addition for a steal. You thought stealing was bad, and said so, and your parents laughed, and that look blossomed on their faces, the one that meant, you'll understand when you're older. You feel older. Your mother corrects him. Only some of the toys are Barbies. Most of your collection is made up of porcelain dolls. Some of them, the ones your mother won't let you touch, the ones that live on the highest shelf, are antiques. They are worth real money. If you touch them, you will be in big trouble. Your mother asks him to name his favorite doll. He pauses. You hold your breath. Maybe he will tell her what happened. Then you won't have to. He says the brunette one, and your mother teases his lack of specificity. She is an English teacher, after all. He clears his throat and says he's got to get going to beat traffic. Your mother wishes him good luck. The front door closes. In the map you drew, the front door had a frowny face. When your teacher asked why, you explained that you were sad when people left your home. A human, you now realize, can be a toy, bent to manipulate it at will. You pull the head off your favorite Barbie with barely a flick of your wrist. You bury the decapitated body in your sock drawer. Cupping the head in your hand, you cover Barbie's eyes with your thumb. You make a game of it. Now you see me, now you don't. The Barbie head falls to the floor. 
It rolls under your unmade bed and comes to a standstill, eyes staring out. You wash yourself in the shower and do not ask for help. You're a big kid now. You just did a big kid thing. Before, when you showered with your mother, you found the air too hot and too humid. You couldn't breathe, and you would whine and slap your mother's leg until she turned down the heat. But now the shower is not hot enough. Your skin tingles but still doesn't feel right. Only when the steam sets off the smoke alarm do you finally feel relaxed, the siren screaming all that you have swallowed back. Your mother comes running into the bathroom, holding a wooden spoon covered in red sauce. She doesn't have time for your shenanigans. Dinner is still not ready, and it is almost six. Then your mother sees your peeling skin, and her face scrunches up real tight. When you step out of the shower, the hairs on your arms stick out straight, and you shiver. Your mother wraps you in a towel and asks, what's the matter? You stare at the ground as the tomato sauce strips like blood on the tile. The words are wrong and fuzzy in your mouth. You invent codenames for the parts of the body. Your vagina is V, your chest is BB. The shower is still running, but now your mother is too. Your mother puts you to bed. She doesn't know what else to do. On your bedside table is a plate of sugar cookies and a glass of milk, as if you are being rewarded. From the other room, your little brother whines that it's not fair, and your mother tells him to hush. The police don't know how to look at you. To make it easier, you don't look at them. Your mother buys you three new dolls. They are nicer than your other ones, even nicer than the dolls you are not allowed to touch. They wear silk dresses and come with little matching hand muffs that remind you of polar bears. Perched at the edge of your bed, your mother explains in the same soft voice she uses to tell you bedtime stories that the dolls were hand-painted by a man in France. You will have to be careful with them. They are not meant to be touched. She glances at you. But you can handle it, right? Her eyes are glassy and spilling. Water drips down her cheeks and onto the dolls. She doesn't bother to wipe it away. You don't reply. As your mother lavishes attention on these new recruits, you feel bad for the other dolls. She places the red-haired one in your lap and urges you to play. The Barbie head still rests under your bed. After your mother leaves, you stuff the three dolls deep into your closet, behind the trolls and an unopened game of Battleship. Your father comes home early from his business trip. He forgets your souvenir. He never forgets your souvenir. When you point this out, your father blinks rapidly and calls for your mother. You wake up and hear your parents arguing about what to do. The lawyer delivers the good news. You do not have to go to court. He will act as your proxy once your parents sign some papers. Of course your parents will sign the papers. No eight-year-old should be put through something as traumatic as a day in court. You are asked to videotape a statement. It won't take long, the lawyer promises. If you're lucky, you'll be back at school in time for the Thanksgiving parade. You're one of only four pilgrims in your second grade class. Everyone else wanted to be the wild Indians. Your brother hides in his bedroom playing video games. You knock and ask if you can play. He'd never have agreed in the past, but he knows you went through something terrible and that he should be kind. You play poorly, and though your brother can beat all the kids in the grade above him, he lets you win. This feels worse than losing. Your mother finds the Barbie's headless body in your sock drawer. You are once again called into your father's office. This time, you remain standing as your parents suggest you see a head doctor to help with your emotions. You don't feel very emotional, and you say so. Your parents confess they, that they worry you feel bad because of what happened, even though it's not your fault. The head doctor gives you crayons and a large piece of construction paper. You draw kittens and houses with triangle roofs. You are certain you say nothing of interest. Your mother moves into the guest bedroom. The lawyer asks you to describe what happened. He gently reminds you not to look at the camera. 
the camera studies have shown, frightens children. You will be more comfortable and therefore honest if you speak directly to him. Then he prompts you with words that still make you blush. Afterwards, your mother offers to stop for ice cream, but you want to get back in time for the parade. Your teacher smiles real big when you enter the classroom. For the first time, you notice one of her front teeth is crooked, and you wonder if she will need braces. You raise your hand, and she immediately calls your name. When you ask if you can be an Indian after all, she blinks her big watery eyes and tells you to go nuts. Years pass. You continue to go nuts. Thank you. Our next reader is Garcia Basir, hailing from Dallas, Texas, and Ontario, California. Her writing shifts between poetry and prose. Her work has appeared in Torrid Literature Journal and the Corvus Review. Her current project is a book of prose poetry about growing up in the Inland Empire. Please welcome Garcia Basir. Dear God, it's like... Um high school public speaking all over again. (laughs) I'm going to read like a chapter-ish out of my thesis, but it's not in order, so I guess now that's not relevant. Dear Empire, I need to confess in this last letter, you have become a cemetery. You are a ghost land permeated with reoccurring images at frequencies known only to me. And even, in, and even the sunlight shines slanted upon your surface. And when, it, and when the rain falls, it evaporates before hitting the ground. Yes, it is magic, but the nefarious kind. The kind that is an evocation. Summoning the dead to greet you as I came back to summon what once was. I came back to walk the paths that belonged to my former self, but you can never come back. You can, sorry, you can never come back. You can only return half-heartedly, squeezing into the frames of the present. You can, you do, I did. Then reality comes through, like the angel of death. It ushers precious memories away, leaving the land of dreams, barren like a metallic taste on the back of one's tongue. Life forever unstitching friendships, romances, and even the bonds between kin. And home becomes meaningless without people to populate it. I suppose loneliness loneliness makes one a better poet, just as Spicer said. Loneliness is is necessary for pure poetry. When the loneliness returns, the poet incites the intruder. intruder. Or what Anais Nen said, I am lonely, yet not everybody will do. Some fill the gaps. Others emphasize my loneliness. Still, is what Nen and Spicer said true? Maybe my loneliness exists because those who have filled those gaps in my life are no longer present. Maybe the real intruder is loneliness. Maybe I'll pick up my pen to scrab it away. And now I've confused myself. Do I summon ghosts to fill the empty spaces? How many ghosts can I fit inside you, Empire? And do I have to have enough ink to write my way out of the loneliness that you and time have created? Sincerely. 
Chapter 3, News from the Empire, Moten. Air blower blows through the light, through the heat, through Obama's graying hair, through the Syrian children dead, through a Russian absolutist who don't know nothing about Kervus or why he can't make Russia great again. 10,000 parts in Afghanistan. Five pictures on a cabinet in northern Ontario. The blower wipes away his sweat and splashes it on the head of those who rule. 10,000 eyes stare. 30 pieces of mail under a left cheek, hanging like an anchor from the heart. Waiting for granny and mama and them, and for the sun to lower, and for peace, and for living little Syrians. Chapter 14, Diving in the Empire, A Swan Song. Bold red symbols flashing on the television. Rapid images of men in dress shirts and $400 ties with their faces in their hands. Some look at glowing signage hanging above in disbelief. Every day known to this point revealed as a lie. Anchors solemn and distress, mouthing words and misunderstanding. It was true. It is true. The future is as bleak as a forest after an inferno. Looking in horror, confused by what, what is said, what it means. A lone masculine voice muttering, we're all broke. Not sitting on spots because of his coarseness and stains. Staring towards him since he's my man. But only with vague answers. Later on, performing our nightly ritual. Showering, eating, smoking a bowl, and watching Conan. Bodies tight with uncertainty. Not even potent Kush can dissolve. Won't ask much because he might reveal that the world had ended in the calm. We're all broke and just watched the crash. And now wishing his words had no valor or legitimacy. Even Conan looks as if he might break down. Everyone's looking for comic relief. Only Conan vomits up a pool of dread. This is the last one. Chapter 22, Spicer and the Empire. We share a lot of things. A permanent sense of loneliness, our black dog. Dark as of sitting in the moonlight. We share commonality. Our desire to commune with the dead. Those true idols. Only worth honest conversation and sweet Earl Grey. Earl Grey in jest. The real drink is a shot of whiskey, smoothly burning the tantalized taste buds of the tongue. We share unrequited desires, our external muse, our conduit for poetry, with a capital, capital P and beauty without the capitalization drenched in sticky lust. My eyes linger on queer biceps and yours on straight forearms. Look at us, Jack. We're fools. Thank you. Our, our final reader this evening is Natalie Arps. Born and raised in Los Angeles, Natalie is a lover of fairy tales, the gothic, uncanny, and supernatural elements. She has worked as a psychology and sociology research assistant, studying evolutionary psychology, controversial analysis, 
and the, the psychology of music and laughter. <laughs> She's currently working on an Orr's grant with Otis to explore student learning outcomes in multimodal versus traditional composition. Her, publica her publications include The Animal Nature of Spontaneous Human Laughter in the Evolution and Human Behavior and The Sound of Arousal in Music is context dependent. Please welcome Natalie Arps. <laughs> Sorry, I had a hard time again. No, no, no. It's, it's a mouthful. <laughs> Sorry, guys. A whole lot of uh, research in there with very long titles. All right. Um, I'm going to be reading from a story I wrote called The Unheimlich. Um, it is about the uncanny, so keep that in mind as we're reading. It is horror, um, but at the same time, I hope you'll laugh because I left my laugh track at home, so help a girl out. All right, the Unheimlich. I've been prevailed upon to tell this tale, though it pains me. More than once, I've thought it may well be untellable, for how can one convey the most complete state of terror? Perhaps we had better take precautions. Clear the children from the room, and the grandparents too. Yes, we had better ask all virginal young men and women to step out as well. They will never have experienced the depth of passion this tale may inspire in them. Also, our high-minded intellectuals must go. They will think on it too long, ruminating through the dangerous alleys of its implications. Best put the animals that are easily spooked, such as horses and chickens, into the barn. Stout-hearted lapdogs may stay, for their courage may bolster their owner's own. Goats, too, for I have always perceived such an innate instinct for survival in the goat's oddly slitted pupils. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. What was that? Pray forgive me. Let us think no more on it. Now that it is just us who have been to war, who have, been who have buried children taken from them too soon, who are dull-minded and never ponder too deeply, who are coarse and do not shrink from the rougher edges of life, we may begin. Find a seat. No, no, do not lean against the walls, for if you hear a tapping noise, you will faint. Believe me, it has happened. Let us cover the mirrors. A stray reflection could be deadly. Let us tend the fire, build it quite high. We will want lots of light. Better yet, let us light storm lanterns. This is far preferable to fire, for a fire might be banked unexpectedly, and then we will have no protection. It simply does not bear thinking about. Just now. There it is again. Perhaps I should loosen my collar a touch and have a sip of brandy. I confess I am far more jittery these days than I once was. Now that I think on it, come, let us all have a sip of brandy. We will need to fortify ourselves on our journey through the murky environs of this tale. Now, I beg your patience, for I know I am taking quite a long time to begin. I confess part of this is pure cowardice. I fear that my own fear will keep me from telling this tale, which will turn the tongue in my throat mute with horror. I never used to be so timid. You all know the type of child I was, quite the scamp, bold, unafraid. Even after returning from war, from mustard gas and barbed wire, from putrid corpses and air raids, I did not wake screaming in the night. Alas, now, after the events I will convey to you momentarily, I am much changed. You will forgive me, I hope, if I tremble and sweat and occasionally scrabble about hopelessly for words. A few rules, then, before we get, begin. I cannot guarantee your safety once I begin the story, but we must do what we can. The first, should any of you be taken from your chairs, I pray those of you that remain will not look to see what has become of your lost companion, for to see, to know, would be fatal to you as well. In any account, if one of us is taken, they will already be quite beyond salvation. 
Secondly, do not attempt to name what I am about to tell you, for that which has a name can be called. By speaking of it, I fear I am violating my own rules, but I am the last of my unit left alive, and thus it falls to me to tell the tale. Third, and most importantly, do not look about you as I tell this tale. Look only straight ahead, and only into my eyes, unless I instruct you to do otherwise. As the tale unfolds, you may feel the urge to look around the room, seeking an exit, perhaps, or just to check that the doors are still locked. But for your own safety, look nowhere else. My eyes are your only safe haven. You will see why later. Anyone who wishes to leave now may do so. Those of us gathered here will not think any less of you. I, for one, will think you far wiser than those who stay behind. No one? Very well. Let us begin. (laughs) Whatever is that tapping noise. A different chair, too, please. Something with a high back. It offers a very cheap sort of protection, but so, too, did our foxholes. Even the illusion of safety is worth something. The masks they gave us were ponderous things. So many men died trying to fumble them into place. And yet I would doze in mine half-suffocating, to warn off the specter of asphyxiation. Our unit was exhausted all the time. We slept where and when we could. One afternoon in the foxholes, while not on active duty, I drifted off in my mask, despite the bombs and shots being fired. I fell into a most blissful slumber, the first true sleep I had in ages. I thought so little of the quiet that grew as I slept. It was so pure, as if I alone stood at the beginning of creation, waiting for the rest of the universe to be born. A tapping noise was the lone sound in the oasis of quiet. It filtered from the waiting world into my somnolent ramblings. The noise was not enough to wake me, soft, measured, with regularly repeating intervals. So much like the Morse code I used every day to send messages on our progress at the front to the back of the field, co- the field command office, I translated sounds into letters dreamily in my sleep. M, A, N, G, L, E. They made no sense. I drifted on. A pressure on my shoulder, a slight squeeze of greeting, roused me only slightly. I shifted away in my sleep. The pressure ceased. Some moments later, I felt the weight on my shoulder return and rest there heavily. An expression of solidarity? Control? I thought to shift away. The pressure remained, moved along with me. The silence became ugly, deafening. A shadow fell over me, throwing my face into darkness. Instinct told me I must not open my eyes. I must continue to pretend to sleep. Something stood over me, moved with me, waited to see what I would do. The tapping continued. You there. Yes, you, sir. You are tapping your foot, are you not? Stop at once. I'm quite losing my train of thought. Do allow me a moment to compose myself. My mouth goes dry at the memory. But I must press on and speak for those who no longer can tell the tale. My nerves stood on fire. The beating of my heart faltered. At last, the pressure upon my shoulder ceased. The shadow retreated. The sun blazed forth once more. Only then did I dare open my eyes. The foxhole was empty, strewn with precious things. F's monstrous class ring from Cornell. A silvery photograph of C's startled-looking parents in stiffly formal poses. Near where I lay, the pipe that belonged to W, still stuffed with tobacco. Frantic, caring not for my life, I hoisted myself from the foxhole and ran clear across the battlefield to where our enemy lay. All was silent. I found their trench in the same state as our own. That evening, I struggled struggled over what message to telegram to the field command office. But what indeed can be said when one sees nothing and when nothing remains? I settled upon, all gone, save one. Stop. I alone close my eyes. I alone am left. I returned from the front. 
I endeavored to forget. I did not speak of it again. All was well until just over a little month over a little over a month ago. I sat before the fire in my chair doing a crossword to calm myself. Six across. M. A. N. It was perplexing. Before I knew it, I had drifted off into a restless slumber, struggling over the words. I awakened slowly by a tapping noise. Again, instinct, that formidable savior, that hero of the war, indicated to me that I must not open my eyes, so I kept them firmly shut as I strove to identify from which quarter the sound issued, the walls all around me. Once again, the sound that issued forth was reminiscent of Morse code. I could not rest without knowing. It was vital to me to understand, to piece together the message. But every sound I thought might have completed the word cut off abruptly. Every letter repeated oddly, over and over again. M-M-A-N-G-G-G-L-E. Abruptly it stopped. I felt a presence loom over me. I feigned sleep. Suddenly the cheery glow of my fire was extinguished, and darkness so complete it left no space for air enveloped the room. In the near-perfect silence I struggled for air, for light. I felt, the book of match- I felt for the book of matches in my pocket and struck one. The flare of blue and orange dazzled my eyes so thoroughly that for several moments I saw nothing. The air flooded the room, and my vision returned. The fire had gone cold. I built it up again. The chill horror of the indescribable, the unspeakable, lingered on. It hangs about us now, too, for surely you must hear it, the slight tapping noise that breaks the silence that has fallen over us. Alas, it is with us. I beseech you, do not frenzy and leap from your chairs. Do not look around you. Ignore the remnants of others whose stories have come to an end, the lost string of pearls, a single shoe, the pair of spectacles on the floor. Continue to look only at me. I realize now, in trying to tell this, that I have been going about this all wrong. I must look upon it so that I can describe it to you, so that I can name it. Quickly, shut your eyes. For once I have laid eyes upon it, it will be quantified, tamed and constrained by sight and a name, and it will no longer be unspeakable. I can see it. It is the uncanniest. The end. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.